Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Welcome to another edition of the Insurgents Podcast. And this is going to be a special edition. We're going to break the normative rhythm of the podcast for this episode. I'm recording this episode at 5.20 a.m. I was up at 4 a.m., which is not typical for me, thinking about how I was going to set the table for this particular episode. So let me share my heart with you. What you are about to hear is an interview that I did with three different interviewers in the Christian space. And in my judgment, these are among the best interviewers on the planet. I've done many interviews with many different people, and these three people would be in the top ten in my book. I'm going to introduce all three of them at the very end of the podcast, but let me explain what we will be talking about. Jesus made a statement in John 13, and the statement is something that we Christians often miss, especially in the time in which I'm recording this particular episode. He essentially said that the mark of a genuine disciple the mark of a true follower of Jesus is that they will love other disciples of Jesus. This then is one of the benchmarks of a person who has received the gospel of the kingdom, responded to it, has joined the insurgents. They will love, they will think the best of, they will not mistreat other disciples of Jesus. The Lord said, in John 13. The world will know that you are my disciples if in fact you love one another, meaning the other disciples. And the book of 1 John says essentially the same thing, that the mark of the new birth is that we love the brethren. Now here's one of the problems. Look at social media today, especially when Christians disagree with one another, and ask yourself, am I seeing disciples of Jesus or at least those who profess to be, loving one another? Or am I seeing the opposite? Now, in this episode, I discuss that very specifically. I also talk about false teachers, and I discuss the mark of a false teacher. I don't believe I've done that anywhere else. I also mention the person who is living today, who has been lied about and misrepresented more than any other Christian alive. And I want to make something very clear. What happens today is that when a author or speaker has enemies, there will be fabrications, sometimes outrageous ones, leveled as an attack against that person. But the other way of attacking them is to misrepresent what they believe. And often, the misrepresentation is based in a quotation from that very person that is taken out of context and or misinterpreted. So this individual that I'm going to talk briefly about in this podcast has been not only lied about with fabrications that, by the way, were debunked long ago, but their words have been taken out of context and completely misinterpreted. And let me remind you of something. Jesus Christ had those two things thrown at him during his ministry and even today. False accusations that were fabrications or exaggerations and misrepresentations where his words were taken out of context or misrepresented. The same with Paul of Tarsus, the same with every human being who's had an impact on the kingdom of God in the past and in the present. What's disturbing is that when a person who professes Jesus Christ to be their Lord receives and accepts those misrepresentations and out-of-context quotes as being true without even attempting to go to the person that they're concerned about and asking them directly. 
Another thing I talk about in this episode is the humor of Jesus Christ, something often overlooked or not even understood. And so I hope you have a sense of humor as you listen because the interviews are, in fact, sprinkled with a good dose of comedy, right along with a lot of challenges for those of us who profess to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So this episode has everything to do with the insurgents and the gospel of the kingdom on the ground and in real life. I also cover a number of other things that I think you will find of interest. I want to reiterate something that I have said on my blog and in my Thursday emails, and that is this. This podcast is fairly new up to this episode, and my team and I have discovered that there are two kinds of podcast listeners. We have those who listen to every episode knowing that each one builds on the other, and they all work together. And so we have people who are new to the podcast immediately recognizing this, and they binge on all the episodes. We have others, however, who, for whatever reason, will listen to one or two or three episodes randomly and miss the rest of them, or for whatever reasons, never feel compelled to go back and hear them all. So I want to reiterate, if you're new to the podcast or you've only heard a few of the episodes, I strongly encourage you to listen to each one because, again, they all go together. To just listen to one or two based on the title, for example, is kind of like holding a novel in your hands and only reading four chapters out of it. You're not getting the whole picture. Now, next week, we will resume the normal rhythm where Jeffrey and I take different aspects of the gospel of the kingdom and riff on them and where John and I answer your questions. Let me give you a preview of some of those episodes that are in the queue. There were questions about revivals. What is a revival and do we see one coming on the horizon? There were questions about the fivefold ministry. What is it? particularly the ministry of the apostle. And there's going to be at least one, maybe more, episodes on spiritual warfare. And that episode is going to delve deeply into Satan, what he does, and what he's doing right now. Demons, what they are, where they came from, and what they do. Principalities and powers, what their role is. As well as how kingdom citizens are to respond and react to all three. And it is also going to delve into some history about how spiritual forces have affected governments and societies, as well as an attempt to peel back the layers of some of what's happening today behind the scenes. I think you'll find it fascinating. There's an episode called Mafia Church, which I have had in my mind (laughs) for years and finally have gotten it recorded. This is all about the uncanny parallels between the mafia and the ecclesia of the first century. It's both insightful and comical at the same time. The Sermon on the Mount, we're going to talk about that in one of the episodes. Social justice warriors, the political system, the rewards of the kingdom, this matter of co-working in the kingdom of God, power and ministry in the kingdom, the glory of Jesus Christ and the kingdom. Someone asked a question concerning losing their faith. They were having a real problem with doubt, doubting the Lord, the scripture, etc. And we answer that. The upside down nature of the kingdom, the lost power and meaning of water baptism. Should a Christian go to seminary? We touched on that in one of the earlier episodes, but this is going to be a whole episode dedicated to that, which will put those comments in context. Kingdom cells and mutual care. Should a person who is in the kingdom of God become a police officer or join the military? That's a question that John and I tackle. We also will have upcoming clips of conference messages on the gospel of the kingdom, some of which have never been published anywhere. And then I recently found a very old cassette tape of the first interview that I ever did on a radio show just before I released the book Pagan Christianity with George Barna. And at the time, 
The title that I was toying with was From the Cross to the Cathedral. And so we will get that audio cleaned up and we will make it a part of the Insurgents podcast because it does relate to the kingdom community aspect. And if this is the first episode you've heard in this podcast or you've just been randomly listening to some here and there, this is episode number 11 and here are the ones that came before it. Number one, what the kingdom of God is not. Number two, more kingdom misconceptions. Number three, food, gluttony, fasting in the kingdom. Number four, radicalization versus legalism and libertinism. Number five, kingdom work and finding kingdom community. Number six, racism in the kingdom of God. Number seven, pastors, Old Testament violence in the kingdom. Number eight, the interview that Greg Boyd did with me on the gospel of the kingdom and the insurgents. Number nine, the culture of heaven and the divine colony. Number 10, profanity, swearing, cursing, and the kingdom. So those are the ones that went before. I've given you a preview of some of what's coming. So I hope you will go back, get caught up if you haven't already. Subscribe to the podcast. And you may not know this, but every episode has show notes where we give links to books we mention on the podcast, articles, and other resources. And it's very easy to look at the show notes. If you go to theinsurgents.net, theinsurgents.net, you will find many of the podcast services and apps where you can subscribe to the podcast. And one of them will have a note that says, contains all the show notes. Just click on that and you'll see them all. Well, friends, I hope you will listen to the entire episode, which contains all three interviews. And at the end, I have a special bonus for you. Enjoy. Now, you've got a new book out. Uh, I feel very privileged to have been able to read it already cover to cover. When did it come out? Yesterday? It came out yesterday, March 5th, 2019. Uh, Those of you who are listening to this in the year 3010, it was a long, long time ago, but hopefully the book is still available in print. You were the first one to read it beyond my editor, my wife, and um, let's see, I think the dog got it in his mouth when it was in <laughs> manuscript form. So yeah, you're like the third person to actually read it, but the first reader outside of our publishing team who oh read goodness. the book. So hey, I did not know congratulations that. Congratulations <laughs> to you. I feel very, very, very touched. Uh, and hopefully in the year 3010, Christians will not need this message anymore. More. <laughs> um, right. So whether it's in print or not. Okay, so Regrace on the cover, it says what the shocking beliefs of the great Christians can teach us today. But I laughed. I, I, I haven't laughed uh, at your writing as much in, in a while. You've written some very serious books recently, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was this was a lighter tone, but no less like important. Well, I'm glad you laughed because out of everything I have written so far, this book is peppered heavily with humor and comedy. And I poke fun at myself. I poke fun at us Christians and how we sometimes obnoxiously and belligerently behave when we face another believer with whom we disagree, which is a real problem. And it's the whole reason why I wrote the book. I wrote the book because, well, let me put it to you this way. Way back in the 1500s and the 1600s, Christians were known for slaughtering their fellow Christians over doctrinal disagreements. We have the stories of Martin Luther and Zwingli and others who would ineffectively torture and kill one another over a divergent view of the Lord's Supper, okay? So one brother believes that you know, when Jesus said, this is my body, well, that's literal. Another brother says, well, no, it's not literal, it's spiritual. And then they go to war and they unsheath their swords against one another. And so if you read church history, particularly during those eras, 1500s, 1600s, and even beforehand, it will chill your blood. You're going to see blood rising up to the horse's bit coming from the hands of fellow Christians. And one of the points I make in the book, Jonathan, is that we have come a long way from that. We've come a long way from that kind of behavior. We've come at least 
two millimeters. <laughs> There's something called the internet, <laughs> something called, well, it's a viper pit called Facebook. And uh, while Christians may not unsheath a physical sword, they are raking each other over the coals, destroying one another. The bloodletting is relentless. The carnage is everywhere, and Christians are, in effect, destroying one another over doctrinal and political disagreements. You see it every day on social media feeds, whether it's Twitter or Facebook. The new excommunication is blocking someone on your Facebook page. (laughs) So it's a real problem. And so I felt like, let's see if we can come at this from a totally different vantage point. And I got to give credit to somebody because they gave me the idea of the book and actually, actually, in effect, asked me to write it. And so I'm going to mention a person's name who every one of your listeners knows. And unfortunately, because this guy has been unjustly attacked and lied about just because he, he has such a strong impact. There are rumors on this man, Jonathan, that would make The Walking Dead seem real. Mm. His name is Rick Warren. Uh, (gasps) I just heard 3,000 Apple iPhones turn off. (laughs) Rick read an article I had written on Martin Luther. It was a historical piece on my blog, frankviola.org. And he said, Frank, why don't you write a series on the shocking beliefs of the greats, the great Christians of the past who shaped the church? With the idea being that, these are my words now, I'm just kind of paraphrasing his point, but the idea being that if we can see that the heroes of the Christian faith, whether it be C.S. Lewis, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin, John Wesley, Martin Luther, Billy Graham, etc., if we can see that they did not have immaculate perception, that despite their great contribution to the Christian faith— They didn't see everything perfectly. They held to some pretty strange views themselves, and even some of them unbiblical, and even some of them surprising, and even some of them shocking. If Christians can see that, then the effect should be that they would be a bit more civil and gracious and tolerant and patient with their fellow believers whenever they encounter a theological, doctrinal, or political disagreement. Just to give you an example, um, I know people who, well, I guess they regard John Calvin as being almost the fourth member of the Trinity. (laughs) Careful now. Careful. (laughs) I know one guy, and, uh, you know, he says, if you do not receive JC in your heart, you will not be saved. (laughs) JC meaning John Calvin, not Jesus Christ. Anyway, that's a joke, folks. Anyhow, so... My point is that there are people who who hold John Calvin in monumentally high regard. Well, if you begin to see that John Calvin didn't see everything perfectly, that he had some views that were questionable, if not outrageous, if not unbiblical, if not shocking, or if not at the very least eccentric, then that should soften a John Calvin follower when they come across a Christian who, in their view, doesn't get everything right theologically, Hmm. in their view, kind of misses it on the political landscape, or in their view has an interpretation of Scripture that is not accurate. Well, if John Calvin didn't get everything right, brother, sister, have a little bit of grace (laughs) when you talk to that person who may not see things clearly as you do. And see, that's really the point I'm making in the book, and the whole reason to go into these people. I have high regard for every single one of the people I treat. The very first thing I do right out of the gate, first rattle out of the box of each chapter is to talk about their wonderful contribution. Most of these guys, man, I I cannot tie their shoes, so to speak. And yet, and yet, they were not perfect in their viewpoints. And so the effect that has on me is to have some grace. So yeah, Rick Warren is the one who is sort of I guess, <laughs> yeah, he gave me the idea, and we had some very comical banter back and forth when he enlisted me to do this. And by the way, I, I have to say something here, because what I'm about to—can if can I tell you uh, something that happened yesterday? <laughs> sure, uh, And please. it regards Rick Warren. Now, I want everybody to be very clear about this, whether you love Rick Warren or you hate Rick Warren or, or you're uh, neutral. He didn't write a word of the book, okay? I wrote the book. 
All right. All he did was ask me to write it. Okay. In the blog series, which became the book. All right. Somebody mentions the book on Facebook and they say, oh yeah, uh, Viola wrote this book and Rick Warren asked him to write it. Well, it immediately descended into a long diatribe by a person I don't know, never met, never heard of, basically casting aspersions on Rick Warren and talking about what a heretic he is and all these awful things he believes. Jonathan, that's the exact reason why I wrote the book. <laughs> yes, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> It's to refute and combat and correct that kind of behavior. Yes. It gets even better. So I see this. And so I send out an email to my email list. I have a, a sizable email list. I, I send out an article every Thursday. Well, because the book came out yesterday, which is a Tuesday, I, I sent it out early. And so I tell everybody about the new book. I tell them how they can download five free chapters. And then I say, oh, and by the way, Rick Warren is to quote unquote blame for <laughs> the idea. He's the one that gave me the idea. You credit him or blame him, depending if you like it or not. Uh, but he didn't write any of the book. And then I say a quick word about Rick Warren. Like all Christians who have made an impact today, Rick Warren has been unjustly attacked and lied about for years. And then I tell the little story about the Facebook thread and how somebody just began attacking him and spreading false rumors that were, were debunked, Jonathan, many years ago. I make this point. I say, you know, Rick Warren did not write the book. Even if he were the Antichrist or the spawn of Satan, it's ludicrous to cast aspersions upon him when the book is mentioned because he didn't write it. And then I said, I've written extensively over the years about the Holy Spirit grieving sins of slander, gossip, and rumors, yet some Christians still traffic in them without wincing. See my article, Don't Believe Everything You Read or Hear. And then I say this. While Rick and I don't agree on every point of theology, what two people do, question mark. He's a genuine brother in the Lord whom God has used to bring thousands of people to Christ, and he's done far more for the kingdom than his blue-blooded critics have. Ooh. And then I make a statement here. There are rumors circulating about Rick Warren and his quote-unquote heretical beliefs, alleged heretical beliefs, that were debunked publicly years ago, yet they're still around. Okay, so I send this to my email list. Well, Jonathan, I almost fell out of my chair. I got, <laughs> I got several responses. It wasn't many, thank God, but several responses. One of them said, Rick Warren, did you know that he believed in such and such and such and such? I can't believe that you support Rick Warren. I am unsubscribing from your email list. You are a heretic. All right. That was one of the tamer ones. Then I got another one from somebody that said, Rick Warren? Question mark. Really? Expletive, expletive, expletive. I can't believe how stupid you are. Did you not know that he believed X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z? Well, oh Jonathan, gosh. the irony here is, number one, I explained <laughs> in the very email that they're responding to that the rumors were false and debunked many years ago. That's number one. Number two, they just confirmed why this book needs to be in print and read by thousands and even millions of Christians, because it is a monumental problem that many of the Lord's people don't even realize they have when they're engaging in it in living color. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. I felt, okay, so here's, here's a prime example that, that rung home for me in a huge way. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, okay. Uh, I've, I've read his. I've read a more detailed biography of him. I've seen all kinds of wonderful stuff in his life. I've forgotten a number of things, and so when I read through his his shocking beliefs, um, you know, there's there's all kinds of stuff in here that that's powerfully offensive to me. Uh, slave ownership, uh, yeah. various different issues to do with the papacy. Now, now, just just to say, Frank Frank contextualizes these beliefs, so. My summarizing of these is not exactly fair, but anyway, uh, so so you dig into his his quite infamous uh, sermon 
sinners in the hand of an angry God. And I'll read a little bit of this for those of you who don't, have never heard this before. Anyway, this is, this is from Jonathan Edwards. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. And, and it goes on and just, God looks at us like we look at the most hateful of serpents and, and so on. Yeah. So, okay. The tradition that I come from is very, very big on relating to God as a loving, good father. Mm-hmm. So I read this and I have a huge problem with this. Like, like, how can this guy profess to believe in the same God I believe in? Like, mm-hmm. the, to me, this is almost fundamental level. God is good or God is terrible. Th- those are binary opposites. And so I'm sitting there rereading the sermon, being re-reminded of, of uh, Jonathan Edwards. I'm not one of his fans. But I continue to read. And then I'm reminded uh, of the shocking belief that uh, emotional outbursts, including bodily manifestations, were normative during a revival as Mm -hmm. were mystical experiences uh, they could be a common part of the christian experience so once again uh, the tradition that i've been raised in specifically grew out of the toronto blessing so i am used to a very expressive charismatic experience of church life and of the christ life but i'm forced to deal with this now jonathan edwards the guy i don't like is one of the chief apologists of my experience of the Holy Spirit. Yes, and I want to insert something here, too. During the Toronto blessing, quote-unquote, that occurred in the 90s, the charismatic leaders of that particular phenomenon were passing around the writings of Jonathan Edwards on this very point to defend what was happening, because there was a lot of the emotional outbursts going on at the time, the bizarre manifestations. And Edwards gave logic and language and biblical example and theological savvy in a high voltage way, because the guy was a brilliant intellect, to support all of that. And so here's the thing, Jonathan, there are some Christians who actually take issue with that shocking belief that you agree with regarding the manifestations, and they're all for God-hating sinners like you hate poison, right? (laughs) So, So the point is, I mean, we come back to the point. God used Jonathan Edwards mightily during his day. You read his biography. I mean, he was he was a mover and shaker in his time. There are many people who receive benefit from a lot of what he's written about the affections of the heart. He's one of the first guys, him and John Wesley, that made the Christian faith emotional, not just intellectual and heady. Mm that there was an emotional aspect to the Christian faith. In many ways, both Edwards and Wesley were the forerunners to the Pentecostal movement. And yet they held to certain things that were, you know, questionable, if not worse. And the point being is that every single hero in the Christian faith, whether it's someone in the past, the people who I highlight, or it's someone in the present— does not have immaculate perception. We all miss it somewhere. So why on earth are we raking our fellow brothers and sisters over the coals because we don't agree with their biblical interpretation over something? That's really the point. <laughs> exactly. I think I think the one that cracked me up the most was Spurgeon on the subject of being able to smoke a cigar to the glory of God, but but also but also not really liking musical instruments during worship. Like that's <laughs> yeah. that's not worship, <laughs> but but cigars that's fine. <laughs> he got pummeled when he um, his cigar smoking was discovered, and he had a long running debate with one of the local newspapers who were just slaughtering him for it uh you know because tobacco is evil and that was the mindset and so he he did this whole thing that was just strongly reacting to it and you know he double clicked on it he doubled down and he said i smoke cigars to the glory of god (laughs) (laughs) 
but he was an incredible preacher. And here, here's another guy who believed, not only believed in the supernatural, Jonathan, but he had the manifestations of the word of knowledge, hmm. prophetic utterances, prophecy going on in his ministry. And it was very common, even healing the sick. And yet many Calvinists who almost idolized Charles Spurgeon, many of them believe all that's gone. And so, you know, there's a convenient ignoring of that aspect of his life and ministry. But again, it gets down to this. All of them had views that we diverge from. All of them had views that are questionable, eccentric, weird, odd, unbiblical, shocking even. I'm, we haven't talked about the real shockers with Calvin and Luther, and maybe we'll leave that for people. I think you have to read the book, yeah. <laughs> I think you have to read, but you talk about, I mean, if you're not shocked by some of the stuff that they believed, then, um, well, you're unshockable. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think? Uh, can you paint a picture for us then of the alternative? What, what does it look like for us to show grace yeah. in, in a subject where we might disagree? Well, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you two examples. The first one, I think, really gets to the heart. OK, it's important that a Christian grow into maturity enough to recognize when they're dealing with another person who truly loves the Lord. You know, you can love Jesus and be incorrect. You can love Jesus and be confused about some things regarding the Scripture. Uh, the perfect example of this is Apollos, okay, in the New Testament. Now, if people want to go back and look at it, it's, it's Acts 18. It tells the story of a Jew named Apollos. I'm quoting the, the book of Acts here. A Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the Scriptures well. Now, what happened is Apollos was from Alexandria in Egypt, and he arrived in the city of Ephesus, and he began preaching in the synagogue. And the scripture makes very clear that his knowledge was incomplete, and as a result, he was not preaching the entire gospel. So if we had some modern Christians sitting in the front row of the synagogue listening to Apollos, they would rip his message to shreds, showing that he was inaccurate in a lot of what he believed. And here's the thing. There was a couple listening to him in the synagogue by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. They heard him preach boldly in the synagogue, and here's what they did. They took him aside, and they rebuked him for being a false teacher. No, no, that's not right. They took him aside and they scolded him for his inaccurate understanding of the gospel. No, no, that's not right. <laughs> they took him aside and they excommunicated him from the kingdom of God because his theology was not complete. No, 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 that's not right. <laughs> this, is, this is what it says. They took him, Apollos, aside. So in other words, they, they got with him privately and they explained the way of God even more accurately. And then it says the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged Apollos to go to Achaia, which is Corinth, southern Greece, the city of Corinth they're talking about. They wrote to the believers in Corinth asking them to welcome Apollos. Now that is how it's to be done. Mm. If I see you, for example, hyperventilating on Facebook about some doctrine that I disagree with, I am to go to you if I'm concerned, and I'm to talk to you in private and say, you know, Jonathan, I'm concerned about this view you have. I really don't understand why you hold it. And then I'll start asking you questions. Uh, Jonathan, how does your view on this subject fit into this scripture here? Sure. And how do you reconcile it with this scripture here? And what I'm doing is I'm trying to understand why you believe what you believe. There's also an openness on my part to be corrected by you. On the other hand, I'm also trying to draw out if, in fact, what you believe is true or false. And if it's false, and, and I'm correcting you by asking these questions and engaging you, but I'm doing it in a civil way. George Whitfield was the one who's credited for making the statement, let us agree to disagree. And sometimes there's going to come a point where two believers are not going to see eye to eye on everything. For example, your friend who doesn't believe that the gifts of the Spirit are extant today, and you do, well, you may hash it out, you may talk about it, you may ask one another's questions, you may challenge each other, but at the end of the day, 
You may come to say, you know what, let's agree to disagree on this. Maybe in 10 years, I'll come to your side or in 10 years, you'll come to my side. But let's not break fellowship over that. That is not an essential of the faith. And even when it comes to essentials of the faith, all right, a lot of it comes down to a person being confused. They were taught wrong. And so the approach that Priscilla and Aquila take with Apollos is really the wonderful model. And the other example I wanted to give, and it's in the book, but we have George Whitfield, who was a Calvinist, and we have John Wesley, who was an Arminian. Right. Now, everybody listening who knows theology is well aware that Calvinists and Arminians are bitterly opposed to one another in their theological viewpoints. In fact, historically, Calvinists believe Arminians are heretics, and Arminians believe Calvinists are heretics, okay? And that's still held by many, many people today. Well, here's the thing. These two men knew each other. They were both servants of the Lord who preached the gospel, who surrendered their lives to Christ, and uh, they both had monumental impacts during their time and even afterwards. And George Whitfield was asked this question about John Wesley. The question was, George, will we see John Wesley in heaven? Hmm. Now, if you ask that question to many Calvinists today, you know what they would say? Absolutely not, because John Wesley was an Arminian. He was not orthodox in his beliefs. We will not see him in heaven. But here's what George Whitfield said. He says, I fear not. In other words, no, we will not see John Wesley in heaven. But listen to the rest of the statement. I fear not, for he will be so near the eternal throne, and we at such a distance, we shall hardly get sight of him. Wow. That's what regracing is. That's exactly what it is. It's the ability to see the spiritual stature of an individual, the spiritual maturity of an individual, regardless of viewpoints they may hold that we find disagreeable. That's powerful. There's a quote uh, that I pulled out from E. Stanley Jones. is the measurement of my spirit of criticism is the measurement of my distance from Christ. Mm. I'm like, oh, that hit me in the gut. Yes, yes. Well, one of the things I tried to do, uh, Jonathan, in the book is I have those epigraphs before every chapter, and uh, I tried to find the the best ones written by you know people like A.W. Tozer and Frank Laubach and, and Oswald Chambers that really buttress and support the point I'm trying to make in this book, because I think it's so vital, especially in a day where Christians, every single moment we look at our Facebook feeds, we see them going after one another's throats over doctrinal or political disagreements. Let me tell you something. The winner in all of that is Satan. You know, the devil gloats when Christians go after one another over their disagreements. And it's such a horrible witness to the world because the world sees this and they say, these Christian people, how can I take them seriously? They can't even get along with one another. Yeah. For sure. But what about actual false teachers? What about like real heresy crossing the line of Christian orthodoxy? Because I I know some listeners out there will be saying, yes, 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 but. Yes, 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 but. Okay, well, here's the thing about false teachers. And there there is such a creature called a false teacher in the New Testament, false prophets as well. There is a Herculean difference between a false teacher and someone who does not believe correctly about every doctrine and therefore holds to some false interpretations of Scripture, okay? Okay. There was a time, for example, in my youth, I was taught that there would be a rapture that would precede a tribulation period of seven years, and then after that period ended, Jesus would return, not everybody would be raptured before that, and uh, that's what I was taught. That was the tradition I came from. Now, I later came to realize that that's a very new doctrine. It developed in about 1830. You cannot find it before that in church history. Many scholars will agree with me that that is not the best way to interpret Scripture. So in my viewpoint, that would have been a false interpretation of Scripture. Of course, some people will disagree with with that, but the point being is that you can hold to an interpretation of the Bible that is incorrect. That doesn't make you a false teacher. Here's what a false teacher is. Number one, these are people, according to the New Testament, who have never experienced salvation. They are pretenders, okay? There's nothing genuine about a false teacher. Number two, 
they have a pattern of attacking God's true servants. Hmm. I'm going to repeat that. A false teacher is a person who attacks God's true servants, usually through misrepresentation and slander. All the false teachers in the New Testament attacked the true apostles of Jesus, Paul being the main one. All right. He was the subject of the attacks of false teachers. They deny the humanity and or divinity of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. They deny his humanity or his divinity. They teach that salvation is found outside of Christ, and they deny his bodily resurrection. So if you have those ingredients operating in a person, they're not really saved, they're pretending, they're attacking God's true servants, they're bringing a completely different gospel whereby they rechange the person of Jesus of Nazareth into someone who is not really human or not really divine and not being the way to salvation, and they deny his bodily resurrection, you've got a false teacher. Now, according to the New Testament, false teachers are to be corrected. All right. And if they don't repent, if they keep pushing their false teaching in a local body of believers after they have been corrected privately on numerous occasions, then as a last resort, they're to be put out of the church. But this quick trigger happiness in the hearts of many Christians to immediately Mm. to immediately without even wincing accuse somebody of being a false teacher or even a heretic just because they don't agree with their doctrinal viewpoints is contrary to the Spirit of God. It violates the New Testament from beginning to end and the spirit of it, and it grieves the Holy Spirit. And so that's one of the big problems. The the bigger problem we have is not that there are so many false teachers. It's that there's so many Christians accusing believers they disagree with over doctrinal interpretations of being false teachers. That's a bigger problem. For sure. That's good. Oh, thank you for summing that up. I really appreciate that. That's that's really good. Yes, my heart is feeling feeling good. Thank you for for correcting me privately, brother. (laughs) I wanted it to be an entertaining read as well as a challenging read. So there's a lot of humor in it. And I think uh, most people will find themselves laughing as they read along. Well, that's going to be one of the keys to agreeing to disagree with others or getting along with others, even when we disagree, isn't it? Because if we can't laugh at some of the things Christians have done through the centuries, uh, even some of the things Christians do today, and maybe even more importantly, some of the things that you and I do ourselves. Exactly. Right? If we don't have that sense of humor, I mean, we're doomed from the start. Uh, we have to have a little bit of humor about, about Christian history, Christian theology, and Christianity in general sometimes. Well, one of the problems is that many Christians take themselves way too seriously. Yeah. Of all people, I am dead serious when it comes to the gospel and the gospel of the kingdom especially. But if you cannot poke fun at yourself, if you cannot take yourself unseriously at times, then you really are not walking in the steps of Jesus Christ. One of the things about the Lord is he has a sense of humor. And if that's a new idea to people, they can pick up a book entitled Jesus of Theography that I wrote with Leonard Sweet, and we have a whole chapter on the humor aspect of Christ. He was not sucking a lemon everywhere he went. He he was someone who had joy and he could laugh. And some of his statements, we miss the humor in it because we're 21st century readers going back to first century maxims. But when we understand what he was saying in certain contexts, I mean, he he was a rip-roaring, funny person at times. All that to say, you're right, when we take ourselves too seriously, that's when we pull out the guns against our fellow brethren when we disagree. And I think the point you're making and uh, in, in the book overall is that just because someone has some shocking beliefs, which might be shocking to us, and maybe not, I, I liked how you said some of these beliefs, these shocking beliefs, you yourselves hold, right? And you're not going to say which is which, <laughs> to, uh, and some of them you don't. So, but But the point is... Just because someone has a shocking belief doesn't mean you have to throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and reject them 100% and call them a heretic, consign them to hell, and you know start slaughtering them in the name of Jesus Christ through your keyboard. 
<laughs> exactly. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, the keyboard is now the new axe. It's the new state, <laughs> the new noose. It's the new, this is go on and on. And that's what I'm talking about when it comes to holding a belief wherein you disagree with another brother and sister, but still be able to fellowship with them at a very high level and receive them as someone from the Lord. I'll get closer to home. I mean, you know, Jeremy, most of what you believe is just crazy, but you know, I accept you as a brother. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The laugh was delayed there. I was, I was getting Uh, concerned. It was quiet, but you know, I mean, I don't hold your heretical beliefs against okay, you. you know, all you're, right, you're growing in the Lord. You're growing. You know what I mean? <laughs> we haven't all arrived. You know, uh-huh. we're in the process. So this to the Lord will make clear to me, huh? <laughs> let's be a little bit more gracious and patient with one another. You know, the Bible uh-huh. does exhort us to be long suffering, which means suffer long with your brother or sister. Yeah, and that is the fruit of the spirit. Yeah, no, I know you and I. We, you and I, agree on a lot of things, and we also disagree on on several yeah, things absolutely. too. And that's one hundred percent fine. We can still, you know, be friends online and work together in a lot of ways. And that's the beauty of the Christian church, I believe, when we're working in unity and love the way we're supposed to. And that's what's so great about your book. The interesting thing about the word heresy, it's not what we think it is. Heresy in the first century did not mean holding to an inaccurate or false belief. Heresy in the first century was an action. It was when a believer began to divide a body of believers, divide an ecclesia, divide an assembly. And a person can be divisive, not just with false teaching, which often happens. A person can be divisive and divide God's people with a biblical truth. So a heretic can be a heretic with the truth. And so there's a whole chapter on that. And also, Jeremy, I talk about in the book, I don't want to give any of it away here because, you know, I go through it progressively, but there are uh, situations where a person is engaging in spreading false teaching that goes right to the heart of the gospel. And the question is, okay, when that happens, first of all, what does it look like? How do we know it's false teaching? And the second thing is, how do we deal with it? And so there's a whole section in there. But by and large, I'm really talking about just areas of interpretation that we just disagree with. And there's some Christians that are so trigger happy that if you disagree with them, you're immediately a heretic because you disagree with them on a biblical interpretation, which is just ludicrous. Yeah. Like you, I did a study on the word heresy and found out exactly what you discovered, that uh, it was. It's, it's, it's this activity where some Christians were dividing over mm-hmm. with other Christians, splitting up the church and, and condemning each other even uh, over certain you know, disagreements and of opinion and belief. And and so it's funny that the the who go around dividing the church and name calling and being divisive, in a sense, from a New Testament perspective, they are the real heretics almost. Um because because of how divisive and angry and, and bitter some of their, their words are. So mm. but again, we don't want to be name calling and pointing fingers. So uh, there's grace even there, which we too yeah. try to extend and yeah. be patient. Uh, towards towards those people, and hopefully they learn. And I think one of the keys here, too, that was really helpful for me is discovering, just sort of looking back through my own life, I think it's helpful to look at these great uh, people of the past and what they thought and taught, and we realize, you know, I disagree with them on this. But I think then, it, for me, it transitions to looking back to my own past, and I've been writing and teaching for, I don't know, 30 years, I guess, and realizing, I was just reviewing some of my sermons that I taught about 15 years ago, and I am shaking my head at myself at what I taught and believed back then. And I realized, you know what, I disagree with myself. I held some things 15 years ago that were shocking, I think, uh, and that, <laughs> right. that I, I disagree with strongly today. And uh, so that likely means... That even today, right now, I hold some things, I believe some things, I teach some things that maybe in 10 or 15 years from now, I will look back upon, you know, myself of today and shake my head some more and do the little face, you know, the face palm. And, And so that, and since I want people to extend grace towards me for some of what I believe, you know, you might disagree. Fine. Let's love each other. Let's, we can even have a discussion about it if we want. And teach each other, sure, and iron sharpens iron, and discuss scripture, all of that's good, but at the end of the day, we want to extend grace towards each other, be patient, 
and realize that Jesus is leading us all towards unity and love, and, and we can you know, be like uh, John Wesley and uh, Whitfield and agree to disagree, realizing mm-hmm. we're both part of the family of God. That's just so beautiful about this. And I just think lots of people don't realize that. Lots of people think, oh, I am 100% correct in my doctrine. <laughs> no, you aren't. And you need well, what some you're of these describing people. describing is is a process of growth. I mean, it it is true for every believer who's honest that what you believe today is not what you believed when you were just a young believer, a new babe in Christ. And and if that's not true, then you haven't grown much, nor have you been tied to reality because we're all evolving, we're all learning and for following the Lord, we're learning new things about him and we're reassessing things we once held. Now, here, here's a statement I made. It, it goes along with what you said. Somewhere in the book, I said something to this effect, that we have a lot of Christians that are excommunication happy. And mm. by the way, I believe in excommunication, but it has to be for the specific reasons that Scripture gives. One of the things that the New Testament outlines very clearly as a basis for excommunication is unrepentant slander. Paul says this in his letters. If somebody's going around slandering another believer and they don't stop, they're causing division and they need to be excommunicated. Well, I've found that many Christians who are very much tied to kind of a fundamentalist viewpoint of Scripture, you know, they believe everything the Bible says, kind of ignore that. And so they will receive someone who has been excommunicated even for that sin and receive them as a brother and, you know, align them themselves with them. And, and this just is, is a mockery of, of what the Holy Spirit is, is leading us to do. And, and it corrupts many, many people. But having said that, many people being so happy and quick to excommunicate others, I made the statement that if I was a trigger happy excommunication person and I met myself 35 years ago, I would have to excommunicate myself for some of the <laughs> stuff I believe. Right. <laughs> There's a chapter called The New Tolerance, which is big in our day. Boy, tolerance is being uh, hammered at people and used in such a way where uh, those who throw it the most at others are the most intolerant. Yeah, that's so true. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> You just might be a Pharisee if, and there's a long (laughs) list of, (laughs) so you think you disagree. Well, one of the things I've found, Jeremy, is that many times when two believers really think they have a disagreement, if they go deep into conversing about it, they will find many, many times they really don't disagree. They're just using different language in their conversation. And uh, that happens often. In other words, it's rooted in semantics, not reality. Here's another one. The art of being a jerk online. (laughs) So if you want to be a jerk online, here are the characteristics. Warning, the world is watching how we Christians treat one another. Boy, that's a sobering uh, chapter, I tell you. Misrepresentations. Who are the real heretics? Mm. The book has a lot in it that goes into all of this. What are the quote-unquote essentials of the faith? There's a whole chapter on that. Mm. So I think that even what you're writing about in the book can apply to our yes. great political differences as well that we often have with, with each other. And again, mm-hmm. we can have the same approach, just like you just talked about, where rather than condemning people for their views or beliefs, maybe we can sit down and just start asking questions. And ultimately, I've convinced, as I've <clears throat> done this myself, converse with people myself, if we ask these questions, ultimately we, we discover we, we're not that far apart. We both want the same things. We both agree on a lot of the essentials and the basics. We just maybe yes. disagree on how to get there, or how to apply things. But yeah, ultimately, we're, we're all shooting for the same thing. And so I love this book. I love what you've done here. And ultimately, I really hope it's used. First, tell us what prompted you to write this and then what the title Regrace is all about. Yeah, the story is interesting. If anybody is on social media, especially Facebook, which in many cases is a viper pit, (laughs) you are flooded almost daily with your social media feed being full of vitriolic assaults and throwdowns and smackdowns among Christians when they disagree with each other. The carnage just gets worse and worse every year. We have Christians, in effect, excommunicating each other on Facebook and on Twitter just because they disagree theologically or politically. 
And the world sees this. It is not a good witness at all. But, Michael, we have lost the art of being able to disagree agreeably, to be able to receive a person, respect them in the Lord, and yet disagree with them on some doctrinal or theological or even political point. I made the statement that if murder were legal in the United States, the number one cause of death would no longer be cancer, heart attacks, or car accidents. I believe it would be Christians slain at the hands of other Christians over doctrinal and political disagreements. Mm. You know, it's gotten that bad. So I wanted to write a book that would kind of put the whole conversation in a totally different perspective. And so the title, Regrace, is all about rediscovering grace and extending grace when we have a disagreement, when we don't see eye-to-eye with another believer. All right, so, so Frank, for those who don't know you, you're, you're a careful student of the Word. You've done in-depth biblical surveys, going through scriptures on different subjects and things like that. And you don't have the viewpoint of anything goes. You'll sometimes shoot me a note asking about a particular issue. Or So before we get into some specifics here, and obviously folks need, need to get the book to get the whole perspective and then as you weigh in and give comment. But does orthodoxy matter? Should we have set beliefs that we're passionate about? And, and should we say certain things are outside the faith and, and are actual heresy? Does anything go? Yeah, anything doesn't go. The heart of the question is not what does one believe, but how do we handle ourselves when we come across a disagreement? And not everything is heresy. You know, uh, unfortunately, that's become a word that's just thrown out so loosely. I mean, uh, you probably lost count of the number of times you've been called a heretic. I know I have. (laughs) Yep. Yes, sir. Uh, A hypocrite is someone who complains about the sex, violence, and profanity on their DVD player. And a heretic today is anyone who disagrees with your theology, so to speak. Therefore, you know, everybody's calling each other heretics. There's certainly a test of orthodoxy, and I have a whole chapter in, in the book that describes that. But this comes down to how do we handle ourselves, and how do we have a conversation with someone when we come against a disagreement? And that's really where things break down. Christians no longer are able to either, on the one hand, agree to disagree, or on the other hand, to be able to disagree graciously. Yeah, I am uh, close friends with Dr. James White, and he's an apologist, he's a polemicist, he's a theologian, he is a staunch Calvinist. I am not a staunch Calvinist, I'm a staunch un-Calvinist. He is non-charismatic, I'm charismatic. Uh, and and we've had you know, we have plenty of differences. We've debated each other quite a few times. I did a show with him last week where we just laid out our differences on the atonement, and we do it as brothers in the Lord. I had him speak to our students in our ministry school and had him preach from our pulpit on Sunday morning at, at Fire Church, and he brought a wonderful message that that every believing Christian should be able to shout an amen to from Philippians the second chapter. What bothers me and disturbs me is people are so thrilled with our friendship and our partnership for the gospel in the midst of our differences. That should be the norm. That should be just the way it is. And look, a little humility would indicate that unless I personally think that I alone am right on all points, that that I, I, yeah, on the fundamentals will die for those. But there are plenty of other issues to think that I'm right on every last thing that I believe, that, that I'm the only person on the planet and everybody else is wrong, or my little fellowship or group. So there, there's an arrogance with that that you know, does not honor the rest of the body and thinks that I have it all. So if we come with humility, you know, I can say, Frank, I totally disagree with you on that, man. Wow, I think that's completely off base. Well, How did you get that idea? Tell me where you're coming from. Let me explain it. And then if these are things with, within the parameters of orthodoxy, we bless each other, love each other, and walk on, uh, as, as opposed to the bloodletting. Absolutely, as opposed to the bloodletting. Well, A.W. Tozer made this statement. I have a lot of quotes like this in the book. He said, you can be as straight as a gun barrel theologically and just as empty as one spiritually. Mm. And what's more important to Jesus Christ, our Lord, is how we treat other people, even beyond being mentally or intellectually correct. 
Because if you're theologically correct and if you're politically correct, well, using it in, a, in the right sense, right, your politics is in line with Scripture, but you treat people in a nasty, vindictive, unkind way, then you're wrong, even though right. you may be right. You see? Yep. That's what the book is all about, and it gives practical handles on how to actually disagree with someone in an agreeable way. All right, friends, the book Regrace, literally hot off the press, published by Baker Books. And the reason for giving illustrations about other leaders is that these are people whom we respect. These are people who we will quote quite freely. And yet, if they were alive today, they get slammed, you know, they, they'd be called heretics and, and they, for some of their beliefs. So let, let's, let's give a specific, um, you got a whole bunch to pick from, but let's start. You, you pick it, maybe one that, that you think our listeners and viewers might not be familiar with. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, let's talk about C.S. Lewis. Now, C.S. Lewis is someone who I have great high regard for. He was one of the greatest Christian defenders of the faith in history, and the man was just absolutely brilliant. And I have no question that he knew the Lord. But even the great C.S. Lewis did not have immaculate perception. Uh, for example, uh, he believed in praying for the dead. And, and Michael, he not only believed it, he made the statement that it was so spontaneous to him that only the most compulsive theological case against it would deter him from doing it. He just could not envision himself not praying for dead people. All right? So <laughs> we have no scriptural evidence of praying for the dead in the Bible, and a case can be made that, you know, it's contrary to Scripture, yet he believed that. Uh, he also believed in purgatory, purgatorial cleansing, that after people died, there was a period of testing and cleansing. And even beyond that, Something that many Christians would find surprising is that he believed it was possible for some unbelievers to find salvation after they had left this world. Now, he was not a universalist. He didn't believe in ultimate reconciliation, but he did hold to the possibility that some would, in fact, find salvation, or some people, rather, after they died. Now, I use him as an illustration that for many Christians, C.S. Lewis is, is a hero. For many Christians, you know, you don't get any better than Lewis in defending the Christian faith against atheism and agnostics. But here's the thing. He didn't see all things clearly. He didn't have perfect understanding of Scripture or theology, and yet God used him and used him mightily. And if that's the case, if C.S. Lewis wasn't perfect in his views, then how much more gracious should I be when I come across another believer in Christ who clearly has evidence that they're following the Lord, and they have missed it, in my view, on theology or politics or doctrine. Got it. And, and C.S. Lewis, of course, is someone that I quote all the time, and whose, whose books, he, he was considered to be, by top Christian leaders, the most influential Christian author of the 20th century. A major survey was done a few years back, and when leader after leader after leader had to pick someone, his name came up the most. And obviously these other beliefs were not major things that he put forward. And they're things right. that we absolutely differ with scripturally, but some absolutely based on that would brand him a heretic. Look, Billy Graham had just passed from this world and I'm reading websites saying he's now in hell getting his due reward. Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, so friends, let me just go through the table of contents uh, after asking why this book and then laying out some foundations, honoring those with whom you disagree, it's not a blood sport. All right, check this out. Are you ready? This is in the new book, Regrace, just out today by Frank Viola. The shocking beliefs of C.S. Lewis, the shocking beliefs of Jonathan Edwards, the shocking beliefs of Martin Luther, the shocking beliefs of John Calvin, the shocking beliefs of Augustine, the shocking beliefs of John Wesley, the shocking beliefs of Charles Spurgeon, the shocking beliefs of D.L. Moody, and seven shocking statements by Billy Graham, and then the new tolerance, and then you might be a Pharisee, etc. Uh, listen, friends, Frank's intention is to mess with you, to challenge you to think 
in a godly way, in a Christian way, in a mature way. Frank, as I was reading the table of contents out loud, I was picturing people like, well, I don't look to that one, well, uh, you know, like hoping that they could dodge this. But you got it pretty well covered. I mean, you, you've got from Calvin and Luther to, to Wesley, you know, and you've got Spurgeon and, and Moody and, 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 you know, from Augustine to Billy Graham. So in each of these cases, what you're saying is that, that we treat leaders from the past with greater respect and with more tolerance towards what may have been some blemishes in their theology or beliefs we don't do the same with each other t- today, which is a really dangerous double standard. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact is that most Christians aren't aware of some of the shocking, surprising, and flawed views that these great Christians had. You know, so when you shine the light on that, and you know, for example, I have friends who are Calvin fanatics. I mean, they think you know John Calvin was just under Jesus Christ, you know? Yep, yep. And yet, when they read this and they realize, well, wait a minute, you know, this guy didn't have such a perfect theology as I thought, the effect has to be to step back a little bit and say, look, if my hero didn't get everything right, then how much more should I be more gracious, you know, more patient with other believers? And here's the thing, Michael, if any Christian is honest with themselves, if they go back decades, I know for me, you know, 35 years ago, if I made doctrinal perfection the standard of fellowship, I would have had to excommunicate myself 35 years ago. (laughs) Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to those three interviews. I want to thank Jonathan Puddle, Jeremy Myers, and Michael Brown for having me appear on their programs. If you would like to order the book and download the five free chapters of Regrace, What the Shocking Beliefs of the Great Christians Can Teach Us Today, just go to regrace.info, regrace.info, regrace is all one word, and you will see the table of contents, the introduction, the description, and the five chapters, as well as how to order it on discount. Next week, We will be back to the normal rhythm and delve deeper into the gospel of the kingdom. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.